So uh, now that you've had your stretch, um, I'd just like to welcome you all again and uh, reiterate the uh, welcome that Des gave to you this morning. And we trust and we know that uh, the Lord is at work in you. If he isn't yet, hopefully by the end of the service he will. Mark chapter 8, 34 to 38. And he, that is Jesus, summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful culture or generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels. And the Lord bless his word to us this morning. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The story is told of a man who spent his life working three jobs and saving all his money except what he needed for daily provisions. And every other dollar he banked in a retirement scheme that promised him great dividends. The company's sale pitch went like this. Security for those uncertain days, you can bank on it. Finally, the day arrived. He had reached retirement, so the man went to withdraw his hard-earned savings. But as the teller entered the man's details in the computer, the man noticed a strange look on her face. I'm sorry, sir, she said but you don't have any funds in your account. It seems to have already been withdrawn. The man was devastated, as you would be, because the money he had counted on for a more secure retirement wasn't there. The teller noticed the man appeared distressed and asked, Are you okay, sir? All he could say was security. For those uncertain days ahead, you can't bank on it. You know, the story illustrates the fact that many of us value security. We value being secure in our finances, in our relationships, in our work, etc., etc., etc. We value knowing our future is secure. And for some, the new year brings opportunity to review their security. And so some may resolve to be more financially secure. You may have revisited your budget and amended it so that this year you will be financially better off than you were last year or any other year. Or maybe you have determined in your heart that you will work extremely hard on your marriage or friendships for a more secure relationship. Or maybe at work you've decided that you will be a better employee 
so that if the company decides to restructure, you won't be one of the many who received the redundancy letter. But what are we to do when the things we were banking on to bring us security are no, are no longer there? What are we to do when our life savings are unexpectedly withdrawn? What are we to do when the person we've loved most of our lives is suddenly taken? What are we to do when our workplace is destroyed by fire, as was the case for Thomas Foods last year? What are we to do when our health takes a drastic decline? What are we to do when the security of a relationship is suddenly wrecked? And what are we to do when the things we've been trusting as our security, things we believe will provide safety, are suddenly breached? Well, as we continue to turn the chapter of another year, there are several things which are important to us that we value. Last week we considered su success and concluded that success for the Christian is not the same as success for the culture. This week it would be helpful as we enter into another year of excitement, of change, of uncertainty that God has a counter-cultural plan for our security as he does for our success. And so security is something we value, right? We lock our doors. We lock our cars. <laughs> because we value security. The Oxford Dictionary defines security as the state of feeling safe, feeling stable and free from fear or anxiety. Now, I don't know too many people who don't think that it's a good thing to have security in their life. Yet, there is a security which is far greater and has far greater consequences for the people of God than the security which is sold to us by the culture of this world. Because the culture of this world will sell you and I, the idea that the most important security you and I need is in a retirement fund, which promises security for those uncertain days ahead that you can bank on. Or it will deceive you and I to believe that our security must be found in our relationships, in our friendships, in our workplace, in our health, in our finances, in our homes, even in our church buildings. That is why the prosperity gospel is so popular. Because it appeals to the fears of people who are caught up and trapped in the ideals of the culture. John Piper in his book, Risk is right, better to lose your life than to waste it. What a great title for a book. Better to lose your life than to waste it. And referring to the safety and security sold to us by the culture of this world, writes, both the Bible and experience teach us 
that safety is a myth. You can't put enough padlocks, get this, you can't put enough padlocks on your door and enough bars on your window to keep a heart attack from happening. There is no guarantee that anybody is going to live another breath in terms of absolute security or the efforts that we make to keep ourselves safe are ultimately an illusion. In other words, you can try as hard as you like and make every effort, put plans in place, but ultimately it's all an illusion. Whereas the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 14 puts it, in regard to whatever is done under the sun, he concludes that I have seen everything that is done under the sun, even people grasping for security. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Is it the NIV that says grasping for the wind? One of them does. You ever tried to catch the wind? That's what vanity is. It's a vain attempt. In other words, ultimately, as you stand before the Lord at either of the judgment seats, depending on which path you end up on in life's journey, those things that you count as your security here on earth, including in the church, except for Christ, will mean nothing and count for nothing in light of eternity. And although these things can exist in God's economy, folks, they do not determine our ultimate security in the Lord. Therefore they are not things we can thank. And so Jesus is questioned to his disciples, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul is relevant for us today as it was for his disciples back then. We might want to reword it and ask, what does it profit the people of God today to value what the culture of this world values as security and in doing so, when things don't work out the way we expect them to, Will we find ourselves crushed by fear and anxiety, which were the very things that we were trying to avoid in the first place? Where do we run? Where else do we go, Lord, when our hearts long for the kind of security which isn't a vain attempt at grasping for the wind? Where do we run when fear and anxiety come flooding into our hearts and our minds as we feel the weight of the culture playing on our fears, trying to sell us the idea that the security we most need can only be found there? Where do we run? We run to a place like 1 Peter 
chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, first thing we want to notice is that Peter describes the Christians here he, that he was writing to and he describes them as aliens. As you would know, we're not talking about the UFO type. What Peter is describing here is firstly, these people are aliens because their ultimate citizenship doesn't belong in any location mentioned here. But their ultimate citizenship belongs in Heaven in glory. That is what the Greek word paipodemos means metaphorically. Wherever in the world they are, they don't ultimately belong there. They are aliens there, foreigners, strangers. Secondly, these people are aliens in the sense that they are counter-cultural. They do not share the same ideals. They do not share the same ethics. They do not share the same beliefs. They do not share the same loves. That's countercultural. So as the people of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and even Murray Bridge place their trust in the security of this world, the countercultural Christians of Peter's time and the counter-cultural Christians of our time put our trust in the fact that we have our citizenship not here, but in glory with the King of Kings. Where according to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20, neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves cannot break in and steal, isn't that what we do when we install security in our homes and businesses to keep our property, possessions and families safe from thieves who might break in and steal? This is heavenly security. This is glorious security. And no one can break in and steal. Jesus said that heaven is such a place like this. And that is where the countercultural Christian has their citizenship, their home, in the most secure place in the entire universe. More secure than Alcatraz. What we also need to understand about these people is that they were under constant threat constant threat of persecution and suffering, that the safety and security of their lives were historically and geographically threatened 
on a daily basis because they were counter-cultural Christians. Not because they were nice people, but because they were counter-cultural people for the Lord Jesus. That's how you get persecuted. That's how you get threatened. Not for being nice and lovely, but for being And then we read, You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So as Peter continues to, to describe the countercultural Christians of his time and our time, these are timeless truths. They don't change. These are things that never change, unlike what Stuart was talking about this morning. It's the Word of God doesn't change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means today what it meant back then, applied to a different context. So it doesn't change. The truth never changes. So we read, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So as Peter continues to describe the countercultural Christians of his time, he says they are chosen. He dares to mention that word many times. Chosen. Chosen. You are chosen. What does it mean to be chosen then? Well, unfortunately, many make the mistake of interpreting this word using the culture of this world's definition. And their definition goes something like this. Imagine you're a coach of a rugby team. And I use rugby. I've never played for them, so rugby's my thing. You're the coach of a rugby team and you have 30 players to choose from and you only need 15. Now what will determine your choice will be the strength, the speed and the intelligence of those players. And so you choose the strongest and you choose the quickest and you choose the most intelligent 15 players there. Right? Many make the mistake of thinking that we're chosen is like that. There's nothing like that. That's how they interpret the word. That is, God chooses only the strongest God chooses only the wisest. He chooses the most intelligent, the most religious, the most moral, the most ethical people out. And so people who think like this are very proud people. And why wouldn't they be? They have something to be proud of. Yet that's not what that word means. Consider with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 26 to 29 where Paul writing there says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many according to the, the flesh, not many, not many, but God has chosen the He has chosen the what things? Foolish things of the world to shame the what? 
And God has chosen the what things? Of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may did you get that? So that no man may boast. That's how God chooses. Man chooses the other way. He picks the strongest. He picks the the most intelligent, the quickest. But not God. He picks the foolish, the weak, the despised, the base. Sorry, but it doesn't say a lot about that. Weak, base, despised. But that's how God chooses. Do you know that? Therefore, when the culture says, choose the strongest, choose the quickest, choose the most intelligent, God, however, chooses what the culture of this world considers to be foolish, to be weak, to be base, and to be despised. Why? So that no man or woman may boast before him. That is, no man or woman will ever stand before God with a prideful boast, claiming to have achieved, to have earned or deserved God's salvation, God's grace, his mercy by any effort in and of themselves. Do you get that? Isn't that humbling? Isn't that humbling? Isn't that what the Bible calls us to be, humble people, rather than proud people? Because what happens to proud people? They fall. Jesus said, we all fall short of the glory of God. Why? Because of pride. And so to clarify this, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says in Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose our same word, used differently in him before the foundation of the world. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You know what that says? That he chose us before when? And so we were chosen before the foundation of the world. You know when that was? Before creation before we were even a thought in our mummy and daddy's hearts, before we could run, lift, or write. And why is the hope, this the hope of our security? Why should this be the joy of our security? Why should this be the thing we grasp to be secure? Because God never changes his mind. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. You see, if God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, He can do nothing other than what He has already decreed. Do you get that? He can do nothing other than what He has already decreed, what has come out of His mouth, out of His heart. That's all He can do. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man. Because that's how men think. That's how the culture thinks. That he should lie. 
If he says he chose you before the foundations of the world, he means it. Because he cannot lie. Nor a son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? We testify to this, folks. You are sitting here this morning testifying that that is true. Amen? And so God is committed to saving those who have been chosen because his character is such that he cannot do anything other than what he has already decreed, what has already come out of his mouth, out of his heart, out of his mouth. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen, is that word again, chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot what? Promised long ages ago. It's just another way of saying before the foundation of the world. Well, folks, we have a God-given security that we can bank on because we are chosen. Not because of anything in and of us. Because I'd hate to think of God. If I was God, I wouldn't choose me. <laughs> if you were God, you wouldn't choose me. <laughs> Let's be real. But we have a God-given security that we can bank on because we are chosen by grace. So that even when our very lives are threatened or when the things that we've trusted to bring security suddenly are snatched away, we can continue to remain steadfast and safe in the might and the power and the character What about that word foreknowledge? Again, some would use the culture of this world's definition and claim that God foreknew who would choose him. But that is not the Greek word prognosis. That's not what it means. What it means is that God knew you and he knew me before the foundation of the world before you and I were even a thought in our mummy and daddy's hearts, before we could crawl, before we could run, before we could read, before we could write or talk, just like he said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. And before you were born, consecrated you. Some versions use the word sanctified. I sanctified you. You know, if the culture of Jeremiah's time foreknew how he would turn out, they would have never chosen him for God's team because he was only a young man, lacked experience as a great preacher and prophet for God. But God chose him. God chose Jeremiah despite for knowing he would be young and that he would be lacking 
experience. Why? Because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That's why. And you know, in the same way, he has foreknown us, and he has set his affections on us, despite knowing that we would sin and fall short of the glory of God. Despite that. Despite the fact that we would rather have run to the darkness than to the light. And then it says, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so that word sanctifying means quite simply to set apart. And the culture of this world would imagine a conveyor belt in a fruit factory and the Holy Spirit would be a process worker selecting the choice fruit and setting them aside to be delivered to the choices restaurants in the country. But the countercultural image is that the Holy Spirit doesn't set aside the choice fruit, but the defective fruit. Why? As God the Father has chosen and foreknown, God the Holy Spirit sets apart those who have been chosen and foreknown by God. And then God the Holy Spirit does something unusual. Why? For the glory of God. For the character of God. God cannot lie. The Holy Spirit is at work setting God's people apart because they are chosen by God. He can do nothing else but set the chosen apart. But I think there's something very unusual about what Peter says. He says, and then God the Holy Spirit does something unusual. His sanctifying work leads to the obedience of Jesus Christ also. Do you see it? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, that too can be a four. For obedience to Jesus Christ. No matter how you what you put there, it means the same thing. It means the same thing, that the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying you causes you to obey Jesus Christ because in and of yourself, in your darkness, in your fallen nature, you could never obey him. Your grip on the world was too strong. And so the Holy Spirit is at work in the unbeliever to cause them to obey Jesus Christ particularly the gospel, and then sets them apart for the work of God and his glory. <clears throat> I don't know if you get excited knowing that, but that excites me. You know, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You know that, don't you? You know, when you're born again, made alive, guess what happens? You are made alive because of God's great mercy, as we'll read, but because the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in you. 
the very life of God comes into the very dead person. And what do you imagine might happen? You continue to stay dead. If you are dead now, you are not alive and you do not have the Holy Spirit in you. Folks, you need to get this. You have God, the Holy Spirit in you, equal with God in you. The power of God is in you. The might of God is in you. The strength of God is in you. And if you have not sensed that, folks, God is in you now. That's what happens. You obey Jesus Christ. You run to His Word. You treasure Him for all He is worth. When you haven't, you're striving like a religious person achieve what you will never achieve in your strength apart from the grace of God. And I don't say that to upset anyone here. I say that because I want to see you in glory. I don't say that to offend anyone here because I can say other words to offend you. But I say that because I do care. Because the wrath of God people is the judgment you will and you could imagine the worst thing that could ever happen to a person, and you need to multiply that by a trillion before you even come close to the wrath of God. You ever seen the power of God in action? Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and you see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he took his mighty big hands and he grabbed some mud and he turned it into life. He said, let there be life. You imagine how powerful that is? You imagine how strong the person who said, let there be light and there was light is? That is powerful folks my dad said go and do the dishes now and I ran but he could never make darkness turn to light but the God who dwells in you did amen if you're chosen he is your God he has got you in his mighty, powerful hands, so that not even Satan can snatch that from him. How secure is that? Folks, the reality is your security depends on the power, strength, and might of the one you believe is your God. Who is your God? 
And my God, he created a universe that nobody can measure. It just is. Just as it's my God. I believe it's your God too. Your God too, whether you believe in Him or not, He's your God. Because He is the God of the universe. And I was talking to somebody the other the other week, and you know, we we need to be concerned about the devil, don't we? He is our enemy and he attacks from all fronts. And he is the prince of the, the air. Jesus is the king of kings. More mighty, more powerful than the prince. What is there to fear? Nothing when he is your king. Because he is the king of kings. The lord of lords. The king even of the prince of the air. He bows his knee before him one day. Proclaiming Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Where's the joy folks in that? Where's the excitement in that? <laughs> it's there. If you haven't got it. I never get it, but it's there. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, but that no man may boast. You think you can boast? Look out. You stand before God and your mouth will be shut. Because you will be shocked by the glory of God and how great and awesome He is. And then it says to be sprinkled with His blood. And I'll close here. This is reference to the atonement, as you would probably know. That Jesus' death on the cross and the shedding of His blood made atonement for our sins. That's what it simply means. Yet there is another picture here. In those times when a king or a high official would send out a decree, he would seal it, usually by melting wax on the decree and then pressing his stamp in the melted wax. What this did was, it meant that whatever the king had decreed was sealed in the sense that it could never be altered by anyone except the king himself. It had his seal of approval. It meant that whatever was in that decree came from the king. It was true from his mouth and something to be obeyed and trusted. Jesus' blood was shed on that cross. It was like the melting wax on a decree. Sealing what God had promised before the foundation of the world for his chosen. That no man should rob that. 
that no man should adjust that, that no man should take that away. No one, not even the devil, because it's been decreed by God. Likewise, the people of God have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge. I believe that word pledge is, is a Greek word that, that refers to a, an, an engagement ring. That's the pledge from the perfect bridegroom puts that engagement ring on your finger as proof that one day the marriage will be consummated in glory. And Jesus say in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And he say that he was going, but that he would return. And that where he is, you will be also. Amen. Believe that with all your heart. Does that give you hope and security? Is that the kind of thing that when things change and things are suddenly taken away from you, you have the certainty of this? I want you to quickly jump to verse 4 and 5. I can say a lot more, but I want to close here because I think this is important. It says here, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Where does all this lead to? Well, it leads to the sound and sure security of God's people. That when the things in this world we were banking on to bring us security are no longer there, or when our life savings are unexpectedly withdrawn, or when the person we've loved most of our lives is suddenly taken away, or when our workplace is destroyed by fire, or when our health takes a drastic decline, or when the security of a relationship is suddenly wrecked, or even when the things in church that we've found to be our comfort, our security is suddenly changed, we have this certain and sure and secure hope and joy from the Lord himself to obtain an inheritance far greater than any of those things you've been banking on to the point that it is imperishable, that it is undefiled and it will not fade away, be snatched away, suddenly wrecked. 
or destroyed by fire, but is reserved in heaven for you. That word reserved means to be guarded in the most secure place in the entire universe. Day and night it is guarded so that no one is able to snatch it away. Why? Because the God who chose you before the foundations of the world has a stake in you because his character and his glory depend on him keeping his word. A young minister once visited an elderly widow who he was unsure about her salvation. He questioned her and said, Dear sister, how certain are you about your salvation? The old lady answered, If I should not be in heaven, all that I could lose would be my own soul. For that is all I have to lose. But if I should not be in heaven, my Lord would lose his name and his honour. For he has promised to save me from the foundations of the world. The Lord's a faithful God. I want you as the band comes forward to reflect on that. It's interesting, Stuart was talking about change this morning. And him and I had no contact during the week, so you know, trust me, we haven't sort of worked something out here. What happens when change comes into your life? Where are you going to run to? What happens when sudden, something suddenly wrecks your comfort, your security? Are you going to sit there in fear and anxiety? Or are you going to trust that the Lord's character will see you? He made a promise on behalf of your people. I praise you this morning. We look forward to seeing how, Lord, in the world where the culture is so determined to sell us the idea that security is something that we can found that can be found in things that are fleeting. We can find our security and know that we are safe and secure and sound in the rock of all ages. We praise you, Lord. Bless us, we pray for your glory, because it certainly has been our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you. Don't forget there is uh, coffee and tea in the, the Sunday school room. Uh, please make yourself available to that for fellowship and, and prayer. And uh, may the Lord bless you. Trust me, we'll see you again next week.